thank you, Ryan and April. A number of years ago, I quoted that song in a sermon, and uh, Ryan quickly found it, and uh, the Lord's used him to sing it a couple of years now at Christmas time, and we love the message of that song. How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many of them have abandoned their thrones for me and for you? And only one did that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Take your Bibles together, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 together. Let's turn again to our study of God's Word. And we're turning to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 this morning. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. And this morning we will, by God's grace, direct our attention on verse 15. But let's set the passage together, verses 15 through 20, in our thinking, in our mind's eye here this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Well, this is the word of God, as we've heard already this morning. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. The title of the message this morning is the same as last week. We're looking at part two. This is entitled, The Discipline of God's Little Ones. The Discipline of God's Little Ones. To say that relationships take work would be a vast uh, understatement. Beginning, if you will, in our mind's eye within the biblical worldview this week, it jumped out at me that even going back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, in the very first marriage and in the very first sin, we see not only a rebellion against God and His authoritative word, but we see a throwing of the one another, Adam throwing Eve underneath the bus, so to speak. When we think about entrustments of responsibility, uh, the wife you gave me, God, Adam blamed not only Eve, he blamed God uh, for their sin and for his transgression of the law and of the word of God. Just a few pages over in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, we see in the very first murder, by the way, you heard that correctly, the very first marriage and the very first two brothers is... Murder. You thought you came from a dysfunctional family. Listen, the very first family that God created was dysfunctional and sinful. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, we see that the effects of that first sin then lead into the effects of, of, of Cain killing his brother Abel. And when questioned about it, there's value in what I'm about to say here, so track with me. Cain's response to God is, is am I my brother's keeper. In other words, I do not want responsibility in this context for my, my physical brother. I don't want responsibility for my own actions, but I also don't want the entrustment and the charge that's given to me of the brother that I've just killed. In fact, bound up in that word keeper 
Am I my brother's keeper? That's a shepherding term. It means guarding, watching over. And so it shows us that even in the very first relationships, in the very first family, we see a pattern, an effect of the fall, Genesis chapter 3 world that we live in, the fall of man, this broken world, is that we naturally, to use an archaic term, eschew, avoid, evade, the responsibility that is ours to watch over the brethren. That is why in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, when the institution of the law was given, God instructed His people, He said this, Leviticus 19, verse 16, In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about, notice here, as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. So this is not just, as we'll see in just a moment, what we should not do. Also includes, as we saw last week, is with every command, is not on the negative, but there's an implied positive. Here we see an example of that. So you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin against him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here in this cross-reference as we're introducing our sermon today in Leviticus 19, we see not only the negative command, you shall not, but following right along with it, we see the, the you shall. How is it that we show hatred in our heart? We see, see there, if, you're in, if I'm reading it to you and you're hearing, if you're there in the text, you see it. But in verse 16, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. And that's evidence in verse 17, you shall not hate him. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's the festering of an offense or a sin. But what you should do is go to him. Talk about it with him. Bring it to light. Bring it to bear. So we've seen... The first family, now we see in the law of Moses. But what about the kingdom? That's what we're studying in Matthew's gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. Are the expectations the same? Does Jesus give us, shed any light in the new covenant on this? Well, I would like for you to turn to Matthew 12, verse 48. And let's remind ourselves of what we've already seen a number of weeks ago. Matthew 12, verse 48. And what we'll find is that the, the standard of God's truth and His word is yet still the same. Matthew 12, verse 48, but he answered, Jesus, but he answered and said to one who told him, who is my mother, this question, and who are my brothers, and he stretched out his hand towards his disciples, and notice this, this foundational principle, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Context here is key. Jesus is in the middle of his teaching, and he's being told, your, your mother and your brothers, they want to have a word with you. There's a sense of agitation uh, at the teaching ministry of Jesus. They want to have a word with Jesus. There's a lot implied here. We're the flesh and blood. Jesus, we need to speak reason to you. You're starting to annoy us a little bit. Uh, his ways were not their ways. And Jesus leaves them waiting. And he uses the opportunity to teach the foundational principle of the body of Christ. Here, Jesus is cyclically introducing to us and bringing us, onboarding us, on-ramping us as the church to understand there is something new coming. 
There's a new entity, a new thing, and it's my body. It is the ecclesia. It's the church. Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what we find is that this is the expectation of the kingdom of God as well. What is it that makes people brothers? They have a common father. Uh, Because we are family here, Jesus introduces this idea of who his family is, And we as the church, as his disciples, we have a common father through the new birth, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Last week we reminded ourselves that when we see one another, we don't see one another outwardly alone. We know there's a foundational principle that man sees outwardly, God sees the heart. We're limited creatures, we do not have the inside of the spirit realm like the angels have and as God has, but we have the teaching of it. We walk by faith and not by sight alone. And so when we see each other, we don't see each other primarily categorically. Age, distinctions, uh, all those types of things. We see each other as the body of Christ, more specifically as my brother or my sister in Christ. So even to get more practically, how do I engage with one another? Well, that's not just Mr. So-and-so. If we think about Mr. So-and-so as simply Mr. So-and-so, There may be a sense of intimidation or trepidation or worry or fear that will enter to our heart because we're viewing them as the world views them. Their status, their occupation, their job, their age. The church, we don't think like that. I know we do think like that, but we must stop thinking like that. Not to be confusing. When we see each other, we need to see each other as brother and sister. Essentially, you could say like this, the older ladies of the church, there are there are older sisters. The younger ladies of their sir, the equal, if you will, in age or around about there, they're, they're our peer sisters, if you will. The littlest among us, they are our little sisters. When we look at the older brothers of the church, they're not just Mr. So-and-so, they're our older brothers. When we see our peers and our peer groups, they are our brothers. When we see the little list of the males among us, they are our, our little brothers. Now, church, that changes things. Now, I I know that we don't always think that way, but we need to. We need to train ourselves to view one another as the family of God, the body of Christ. And we provide watch care and guardianship over one another. When we bring one of these little ones before the church, when a parent desires to bring them to the Lord and to formally say, I want to raise this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and I need help. Will you pray with me in that? Will you join with me in that? What we're reminding all of ourselves is that there's a sense of sobriety here. Galatians 5, when a brother falls into sin, Paul gives the instruction, let you which are spiritual. When I fall into sin, I need you who are spiritual. When you fall into sin, you need them that are spiritual. So it's in these contexts and the defining of these terms that there's no Bible billies and spiritual sallies. All of us need the love of God to control and infuse our hearts. All of us need to be on praying ground. All of us need to be pursuing a gospel-centered culture here in the church. And that's what we considered last time together, the culture of the church, the church as a family. And we introduced this idea that if we're going to understand Matthew 18 rightly and appropriately, as we walk through it, Let's understand it with the lenses of what type of culture we have 
as a church. We saw together last week that the culture of the New Testament church is a culture of proactive love. Not a question of, well, they're not my concern, as Cain said. We're not asking to ourselves, uh, we're not saying rhetorically, am I my brother's keeper? What we're saying is, is all are my brothers, all are my sisters, and may the Lord help me to see them and love them in that way. The love of the church is a proactive love. It is a, it is a culture, it is a way of life. Last week we saw John 13, 34, we are to love one another. We also saw we are to receive and to welcome one another. We saw that we are to pray for one another. We are to disciple and instruct one another. We are to not provoke and to envy one another. We are to care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. And we are to be devoted with a brotherly love, Romans 12. That was our own ramp last week to this passage of coming to this context. This morning, I want us to frame our thoughts, and you, I will go ahead and give you the outline that we'll be looking at through the study. We'll focus our attention primarily in our time this morning on, number one, the purpose of discipline. So I'll give them to you in this way. Number one, the purpose of discipline. Number two, the procedure of discipline. Number three, the place of discipline. And then lastly, number four, the parting of discipline. One more time, number one, the purpose of discipline. Number two, the procedure of discipline. Number three, the place of discipline. And then number four, the parting of discipline. Number one, I want us to note the purpose of discipline. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. Friends, when we are living life as we've already looked within the light of the one another's, this verse in verse 15 is not intimidating. It's not daunting. It's not crushing. There is relationship that has been established. Now, I want to say something, lest I be misunderstood. I'm not saying that if there's a brother or a sister in the church, that you are not uh, really, just by whatever may be, not intentionally or, or non-intentionally, but you're not particularly close to, that you have no biblical grounds or spiritual grounds to go to them at all. I'm not, I'm not saying that. You could just follow Matthew 18. If you had a, a cursory situation uh, where offense was given or sin was a whatever, do not hear what we're saying here is that you can't go to them and follow verse 15. But what we are saying is that wisdom teaches us, shows us with the whole body of revealed scripture that Matthew 18 is what it should be and as it ought to be when there's a natural, normal, loving relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's not one of us, by the way, who are doing that with perfection or without error. There's not one of us in this intergenerational church that is loving the body perfectly in that way or does not have room to grow in that way. But when I love you and when you love me and when we're praying for one another, when we're ministering to one another with practicality, when we have normal engagements and practical conversations, when we serve in particular ministries with one another, Matthew 18, 15 looks completely different than if there is no previous prior grace-filled deposits in the mutual account of our relationship. Notice with me in this purpose of discipline, the person. Notice what Jesus says, if your brother. Let's hit pause there just for a second. What's so interesting to me about this is that the secular world has a standard. 
Now, we ultimately know that all truth is God's truth. It comes from God's word, whether they realize it or not in, in principle form. But the secular world may call this the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, or they'll have a take on it. Or maybe it's phrased like this, uh, chain of command. How many of you have been in a work environment where they hammered home in your onboarding training uh, chain of command procedures? Raise your hand if that involved maybe you in the work sphere of your life. Maybe you've served in the armed forces. They've given you a very clear protocol about how to follow questions, concerns, disagreements. And they will tell you, do not go to someone over your direct report or that type of thing. Go to the person, key words here, most directly involved. How many of you have served in the armed forces? And you know what I mean when I say chain of command. That's buzzwords for you. Ding, ding, ding. We know exactly what that is. Here's the point I'm trying to make. We all understand this. We all understand this theoretically. We all understand this in our minds, logically. But that, doesn't, that does not explain it. Here's, here's the hard part. It's doing it. it. It's not understanding it. It's doing it. It's not what we know. It's what we do. And that, this is where God's word regularly exposes us, convicts us, causes us to repent and to come into the plumb line of Scripture, it's not what I know, it's my obedience to the Word that is the most, important, the most important thing. Here, Jesus says, if your brother. I want to make a point here that even the secular workforce understands this. And it's a tragedy that in time, sometimes the lost world, the secular workforce, will have a higher standard outside the church in practice than the church does in practice with the higher law of truth and word and love. Here Jesus brings it to the point, who does this apply to? Well, I guess you could say in principle form, there's wisdom in this. Go directly to the most direct person uh, involved, but he's not talking about our engagement as salt and light primarily as believers, as, as the people living in a current place in time. This context is the body of Christ. This is the church. If your brother slash in, implied here, your sister, someone who professes Christ, someone who loves Christ, someone who is regularly listening to his word with you, someone who is a fellow member here at Grace with you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This, friends, is love. This is not confrontation only. This is not something difficult only. This is an expression of the love that we have for the body of Christ. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You may have read that uh, not carefully in the past and maybe thought that that said that a brother is born to cause adversity or, or translated that in thought of your mind that sometimes our brother's do bring adversity. But no, 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 no. Look carefully. A friend loves at all times. Another passage says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Here, a friend loves at all times, and the brother is born for adversity. Can I just hit pause again? Why is it that there are some people in our life that can tell us hard things and we're not offended? But then there's other people in our life, and if they told us the exact same thing in the exact same way, no difference, just the person's different, we would become offended. Well, that's what I've tried to address in the practical sphere, a practical wisdom, a proactive fostering and following in our relationships with one another. But one thing is clear. 
A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity, to help in adversity, to help when things are hard. A brother shows up when things are hardest. A brother and a sister in Christ shows up not just when things are at their worst, but, but when we need that strengthening or that reinforcement in that way. So number one, the person. Secondly, verse 15, notice the, the provocation that is rendered. If your brother sins against you, that, that phrasing, underscoring, sins, why would we go to someone? Why would we have this confrontation? Well, there's something that has breached the relationship, sin. Generically, the word sin, hermatios, it means to miss the mark of God's law, His standard. The context here is also very important. It, looking at this word sin, if your brother sins against you, this is not, by the way, just we disagree about something. You listen to different music than I listen to. Uh, you do ha- have different hobbies than I have. Uh, you do things a different way. This is not preference. This is sin. Character-driven. This is hurt. This is violation of God's truth and His law. Literally transgressing the word of God. What is sin? It's violating, transgressing the law of God, the word of God. It could mean omission. There are sins of commission. There are sins of omission. It could be something explicitly done, or it could be something that should have been done that was omitted. Both can be at play. And both are multifaceted. And we need wisdom on every count to, to, to walk worthy, as Paul describes in Ephesians 4 and 5, to walk worthy of the calling and the manner that is worthy of us. So when will we go if your brother sins against you? So, so let's look here at the context of Scripture. Go back in verse 6 here of Matthew 18. Now the context is important. We cannot divorce verses 15 through 20 apart from the context that we've already looked at. Let's remind ourselves of what we're talking about. What does Jesus have in view? Well, what has he already just said? If your brother sins against you, go back to verse 6. Jesus has already given this instruction. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Causes there in the ritual, like a, sets a trap, a trip stick. This is intentional. This is premeditated. This is, points to the fact of this type of action points to a concern of character. Only people who are not walking in the Spirit would, would act in this way or have a heart that seeks to trip their neighbor in that understanding. Literally, setting trip sticks is the idea. It would be better for that person who does that, verse 6, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe, verse 7, to those who... Uh, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. In other words, this is the brokenness of sin in the world. It's a fact. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Then, verse 12 also provides context where Jesus has already said, verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one who is straying? What is, what is straying spiritually within the life of the local church? Maybe even what is the most common uh, sin or one of the most common sins observed in the life of a local church is falling off from attendance, uh, growing cold in love and no longer coming to observe the hearing of the Word of God and preaching of the Word of God and by lack of attendance, therefore, 
failing to carry out our loving the one another commands that we see in the New Testament. Lack of fulfilling our obligations to the body of Christ. I just want to say a moment here. Church is not just about you, friends. When you come to church, it's not about grading and scoring the sermon. It's not about, and you can do that, and it's not just about, well, good job today, preacher, as if you're an, you're an attender giving a critic, like a film critic giving a film score to, to the movie. Yet many people come to the gathered worship of the church as if it's an event. And they come with their scorecard, and they observe everything critically. And they come, well, that's an A today. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a C minus uh, today. Uh, that, that's a D uh, today. The preacher made me laugh a little bit. I'll give him an A. I'll give him an A. You get the idea. I'm being facetious to make a point. Friends, we not only come to receive what we need for life and godliness and growth and grace, but we come to give. What is that? Praise unto the Lord. Psalm 100, come into his presence with singing and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. On and on. We, we understand these obligations that we have. We have obligations to the body, to the one and others. So the, one of the most likely things that Jesus has already pointed to is the straying aspect of a believer, one who has grown cold and hardened. But here, verse 15, the provocation. If your brother sins against you. Number one, the most number, uh, one of the most common questions asked is, what defines my needing to go to a sinning brother? Well, there's so much we could say here. And next week, or excuse me, not next week, but in two weeks when we begin together, uh, as we come back to this, we will begin with, is looking at what can I forgive now, Jesus here in a second is about to move on into the doctrine of forgiveness extensively. But we're talking about the idea of is what is petty? What is something that I have perceived to be something but was not intended to be that something? And we need discernment. We need a surgeon. We need a, the Spirit's scaffold of the Word of God to help slice our emotions and our feelings um, to not undermine or put down some of those things but to honestly have a higher law of love and living that does not live in a way that's seeking ready to be offensed on the cuff or off the cuff of our, our living. I want to do something real here just to kind of maybe bring in some practical, if your brother sins against you. Well, within the context, we already see someone who's intentionally, what Jesus has brought to our attention, what, what would be warrant for me to go to a brother? Well, number one, he has set a trip stick for you or someone in your family or if you're a parent regarding a little one or something to that effect or uh, what have you. And there's an intentional mode there. that you, There's not only just your thoughts, but if there's a clear pattern, you could say, or there's clear evidence of that, that type of thing. Then go to them and them alone. Jesus has already taught us, beware, woe to you, to those of you who do that, to whom offenses come. Then in verse 12, as we saw, those who are most likely to be wandering from the fold, straying. Why do people stray? My goodness, if we could have full insight into that question, that would be helpful, wouldn't it, for life and ministry? I'm pleased to tell you that at Grace, while we are just like any other church, I would just say this, for our membership to just drop off out of nowhere is not normal. We have done... All that we can do to be careful in an imperfect way, but by God's grace, to show and to model and to remind our church that there's a way to join and there's a way to leave. And both can be celebratory. Both can be prayerful 
both can be loving. We've also rarely had to observe church discipline in a way of, of those who have not left well. They have just abandoned the church. They have no longer responded to the elders' shepherding or care, or they left in a way that is not biblical, or they left in a way that is, is not right, or they were under church discipline, that type of thing. But I just want to say this, as your pastor, you are a joy, Grace, to shepherd. I speak for Mike and Pat when I say thank you for making our jobs easier as those who will give an account to the Lord. Thank you for not fo fully following what we see here in verse 12 as those who just drop off the bandwagon. Do we have them from time to time? Yes, we do. They're nuanced. They're not all the same. Pray that the elders have wisdom when we're shepherding uh, the few of those who completely we just don't see and we love. They won't respond to calls and texts, and we have patterns and rhythms and policies for that. But what else could be viewed here? Well, let's just do something here, and let's just take a couple of the Ten Commandments. What Jesus says, have no other gods before me. Maybe as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, we're observing in our neighbor's life that there is increasingly a God that has replaced Yahweh. It could be in the form of false doctrine. They're under the influence of a false teacher. It could be that they're under the influence of a popular best-selling book. And even as I'm saying this, to some of you who are hearing, or if you're not familiar with Christ, you may say, man, that sounds, that sounds really uh, over the top. Well, again, look at the standard of God's word. We're to shepherd one another. We're to inform one another. It could be that Someone is under the sway of a clear heretic. Someone who's on the record. It's widely known that they are teaching false doctrine. And so we want to come to them. And when we do this, it's not in the sense of like this, although we, we need to appeal to God's word. But I think when I exercise Matthew 18 verse 1, it's like this. And if you do this without already having an onboarding relationship with them, don't be surprised when this doesn't, what doesn't go well. I'm not saying you can't do it, but don't be surprised that if the only communication you have with someone is to call out their faults, you're going to need help, and you're going to need others to get involved, because by the law of human nature, it's going to need unpacking. It could be that a fellow brother or sister in Christ uh, understands that there is a theology being taught at Grace that we ascribe to and ask everyone else to subscribe to, particularly if you teach the Word. And yet there's a very intentional, we're going to do our own thing anyway. We're going to go a different direction, even though we know this is what we've violated, what we've pledged to do. A more common one could be sexual immorality. It could be that someone has fallen into sexual sin, and they are hardened in that sexual sin. It could be theft. It could be rebellion towards authority, attitudes and spirits uh, against the ordained authorities that God has uh, put into someone's life. Maybe most commonly, when a brother sins against, it's in the expression of gossip or slander, backstabbing, and bearing false witness, which is most interesting here because the solution is that we don't keep that going. The solution is that we go directly, Matthew 15, uh, 18, 15, we go directly to a brother. Notice verse 15, the practice that we see here. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice this language here in our text. Tell him. Show him, this means. Reprove 
him. It means, if you're using the New American Standard, some uh, versions, 77, 95, will use the word, I believe, to reprove, show, explain, tell, bring to light. First thing I want to say here is, friends, this is a command. This is an obligation. This is not just to certain individuals of the church. This is to the whole of the church, to the church together, not just to the deacons of the church, not just to the Sunday school teachers of the church, not just to the elder pastors of the church. This is for the whole of the church. We are not to say, Lord, help me uh, with a providential opportunity uh, to evade what is our responsibility. Lord, if you so give an opportunity, help me to speak to this individual about this today. No, more than likely, if a situation has occurred where you have been sinned against, or a brother has not sinned against you, but he's in sin, and you need to go to him, you love him enough as a faithful friend to, to go to him. There are many situations that we don't have time to cover all the multifaceted nuances of, but you get the idea, the principle of what we're talking about. Whether it's against you, or it's against himself, or it's against others, Go to him and show him. Go to him and reprove him. Go to him and tell him his fault or his violation of the word of God. Again, what does it mean to tell? What does it mean to show? What does it mean to reprove? It means to show in accordance with the authority of God's word. To shine, you could say, the light of God's word to bear. So it's also in consistency here as we go to our brother. We're not talking about our sister. It's not talking about opinions. It's not talking about what we think. It's talking about what God's word clearly teaches and says. We need to bring God's word to shine. We need to bring God's word to bear. Psalm 119 verse 130 the unfolding, the psalmist says, the unfolding of your words shines a light. It gives light. Notice here, and it gives understanding to the simple. Do you ever find yourself needing clarification? Uh, do you ever find yourself needing wisdom? Raise both hands. Every day, all day, we find ourselves in situations where we need help. We need wisdom. We need the Lord's truth to infuse our minds, control our thinking, and to be applied to our, our actions. Well, we find some truth, and we're going to conclude our time here this morning on point number one, with this language of go and tell, go and reprove, go and show. I want you to take your Bibles with me and look at some New Testament passages of Scripture that this word is also used that help us. It shines a light as fulfilling Psalm 119 verse 130. The entrance of the word of God gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So let's apply what we've just read in that very way. Turn with me Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11. And here we see in this passage Paul uses the exact same word that is used that Jesus uses. Ephesians 5 verse 11. It will help us. As you're turning there, again, I just want to review. There's a beautiful truth. Brothers and sisters, if you have a friend that comes to you to talk to you about your sin or the perception of your sin, is there room for misunderstanding? Sure. But this is clearly known. This is a pattern of life. This is fruit of life. I'll just say this. If you truly love the Lord, 
and if there's merit to what they say, there's a humility of response. There's a humility of response. There's an examination of self, not a doubling down of resistance. Church, if someone in this church loves you enough to come to you to want to talk to you about your sin, welcome that. Don't double up and be resistant. Don't double up and start slinging ad hominem accusations against their person or character to take away from the concern that they have. Hear them and know this. Thank God that they're coming to you and they're not talking about you. If indeed they're doing that. They're following Matthew 18 verse 15. Praise the Lord that they are coming to you. If your initial response is, I don't like this. How dare them? Who do they think they are? Give praise to the Lord that they love you enough to come to you and not talk about you. And praise the Lord and hope that that, that's actually what's, what's happening. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Ephesians 5.11, Paul says this, Do not participate in the unfruitful works, deeds of darkness, but instead, here's our word, expose them. This word expose is the same, I'm reading from the New American Standard in this particular reference, the same verb is used, Jesus uses in Matthew 18.15. So do not participate, but expose. Verse 12, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, speaking of sin. Verse 13, but all things become visible when they are, notice here, again our word, exposed by what? The light, the light of truth. Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of your word gives light. It brings understanding to the simple. It could be that ignorance is involved in the sin, and even if there is ignorance involved in the sin, it does not excuse the sin. We need to be informed. We need to see the, the truth of God's word and come into compliance of God's word. So verse 13, but the things become visible when they are exposed by the light for everything becomes visible. Everything that becomes visible is, is light. So we do this. When we go to our brother or our sister, we bring the word of God to bear. We go to tell them, to reprove them, to show them. And I also want to give a word of counsel here because, listen, I can't tell you how many pastors uh, that will say, have you ever seen Matthew 18 really work? As if to cast light on Matthew 18, as if it's, it never works. Well, I'll just tell you, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is not to make Matthew 18, 15 work. Your responsibility is to obey the Word of God. Your responsibility is not to be concerned about the growth of your church if you practice Matthew 18. I've had conversations recently with a brother who was dealing with a very blatant public immoral sin in his church. He's grown up in this area. And he's called the pastor friends, pastor mentors to him. He's never seen Matthew 18 practiced. He's never observed it, but he knows he needs to follow God's word. And this is the response he got from a number of men who've known him and loved him. And they just avoided this passage altogether and just said it doesn't work. He got responses like, you'll split the church if you do that. Because the church has never practiced this and because it's long overlooked sin, where are you going to start with your Matthew 18 as, a, as like a term of derision? Well, those things may be true in one sense, but let me just say this, but let's we, i got to stay on the straight and narrow, stay on track, unless we get off track. There's so many things we could go into. But I'll just say this, your responsibility is not the response. Your responsibility is to lovingly fulfill the standard of God's word. 
Your, your job is to come and to bring God's word to bear upon the situation. You cannot make the individual feel something or obey something, but you can lovingly talk to them, urge them, call them to repentance, to the clear understanding in the violation of the truth of the objective, not subjective, but the objective word of God. In fact, you could summarize it like this. In all of our thinking and in all of our practicing, we either practice this in two ways. When a problem comes into our life, we either think in the, in the division of two Ps, personality-based or principle-based. Personality-based is, is that's so-and-so. We think of a face. Now We think of their personality. They are in the, made in the image of God. But as we all know, the fear of man brings a snare. If we allow what Scripture says, the fear of man, to enter into our hearts, where this controls us, there's not only the sin offense, but there's the fear of man offense. So we excuse one sin with another sin. And how do we do that? We say, personality-based reasoning. Well, that's Mr. So-and-so. If I go to them, he will intimidate me. He will put me down. He will belittle my concerns. Again, it has nothing to do with you in that sense. It has everything to do with God's word. We tried to bring into play just a second ago, what are some examples of where we would go and confront? Is it exhaustive? No, but just where we love the brethren and we see very clear signs and patterns of sinful behavior to where we need to call them to repentance and love. And this is, let's just go back to, yes, the fear of man controls like a snare, but friends, it's not hard to do this when you truly love the brethren. When I'm praying for you and you're praying for me, when you're sick and, and you help one another and you visit one another, when there are needs and you go to someone's house and you assist them in their time of need, when there's just practical expressions of love and prayer and it's known, it's felt, this is a natural expression of love that is not as hard as we make it out to be. There's a personality-based thinking where personalities and fear of men fill our hearts and control us. And then there's principle-based decision-making, which is the Word of God, which is what we're talking about here. We bring God's Word to bear. We bring God's Word to share, to, to shine the light of God's Word into the situation. In fact, we'd say it like this. The goal as we do this is to leave the conversation with people thinking about the Word and not us. We're not the point. The Word of God is the point. So may the Lord, as we prepare to hit pause here, may the Lord help us in these things. And I want to give a concluding application in this. This is the responsibility, according to the teaching of Jesus, for all of us. All of us watches over all of us, and all of us watches over each of us. Does Jesus love the church? Yes. Does, is Jesus building his church? Yes. Does Jesus love Mr. So-and-so? Yes. Does Jesus love little one so-and-so? Yes. In other words, it's not just macro. It's yes. It's also the each and every. It's micro. And it's also our responsibility as a collective body as well to love the whole of the assembly and to love each one in the assembly. When we go to a brother, we'll pick up here next time together. When we go to a brother, I'll just say this, by practical experience, 
an application. People don't always remember what you say, but they often remember how you made them feel. Now, that's subjective. I get that. But I'll just say it like this. People can tell whether you're coming to them in a heart of love or a heart of arrogance. People can tell whether you truly mean and shepherd them and love them. They can also tell when you're just sterilely uh, bringing truth against them. I'm not speaking to you this morning on this point. I'm speaking to me as a pastor. 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, as I closed last time together, love must constrain all that we do. You hear the word of God better when you know I love you. You hear the word of God better when you know that I've prayed for you. But it's not just for the pastor alone. It's for each of us, and it's for all of us. Well, I want to say this in conclusion. I know I'm not lying, but we are entering into a special time of year. Many of you have offered up prayer requests around Thanksgiving and around Christmas, and you've said things like, pray for me, I'm going to be with family. Pray for me. That's difficult. There's long-standing offenses. There's long-standing disagreements. Um, there's things that were said to one another at a family meal last time, last Christmas, or whatever. You get the idea. Um, and we need wisdom here. Many of you need wisdom in the coming days as you think about Matthew 18 in light of your familial uh, relationships. Well, may the Lord help us. May the Lord give us light. May the Lord give us guidance. And may He give us obedience to His Word and courage to obey His truth. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do love You. And we thank You for Your Word. And we pray that it would come to light and come to bear upon us. Father, we pray that You would lead us into Your truth and help us to be obedient to your truth. We pray that we would lovingly and faithfully go when needed, when appropriate, when led of your spirit, when we see a sinning brother, sinning sister, and love to go to them and express that love and show that love like you show that love in leaving the, the many to go to the one. Every member of the assembly, Lord, is valuable and has value in your sight. Everyone is a soul for which you died. Everyone is your bride. May we see them as such. May we see them in the appropriate light. And may we love one another as you have loved us. May we love what you love and hate what you hate. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.